Welcome to Ways to Means, a personal finance podcast with Hannah and Susanna. We believe financial empowerment is a collective effort, and we learn best by sharing personal experiences with each other. Join us as we talk about all things money. Because we all have these like deep, deep backlogs of like all these things we could be, all these versions of ourselves, all these goals we could achieve. And so what do you do to try and make sure that the things that actually matter to you most do end up at the top of your backlog and that you can make commitments towards getting those, especially when a lot of those goals can feel like very unachievable. On today's episode, we're excited to have Amy as our guest to talk about her approach to lifestyle optimization. Her personal finance philosophy is informed by material minimalism and a commitment to making intentional life choices. She aims to strike a balance between investing in her future and cultivating a meaningful present. Stay tuned to learn about the deathbed manifesto and other strategies she uses to live intentionally, avoid regrets, and enable a vibrant and sustainable lifestyle for herself. I'm so glad you joined us, Amy. I think this will be really fun for our listeners. Amy and I were colleagues together with the City of Boston's Department of Neighborhood Development. As the IT director, I hired Amy in in mid-2019 as product manager for the department's digital resources. One major project that she worked on was um, redesigning MetroList, which is the city's listing service, digital listing service for um, income-restricted and affordable housing. Um, which you can check out at boston.gov backslash MetroList. I'll uh, have Amy explain what she's doing now. But um, while working with Amy at the city, I noticed that her talents in product management um, were evident in her approach to life outside the office as well. Um, these things are that she's really goal-driven, evidence-based. She, she's very reflective. Um, she value, values process improvement. She um, does postmortems. She has a commitment to morale. She's very anti-blame. Um, and she lives really intentionally. She bases her life choices on longer term objectives and builds in opportunities to reflect on whether those choices are actually advancing her goals. She has really a special approach to product management. And I would love to talk with her um, about how she uses some of these skills and instincts in her approach to her personal finance. So let's get started actually by Amy, can you explain or give us some basic context for your lifestyle, including what you do for work, but um, in as much as it's relevant to, to your personal finance choices. So, you know, do you rent or own? Where do you live? Um, what's your household like, et cetera? Sure. Well, thanks for the very kind intro. I'm really excited to be here. Um, and it was also really fun working with Susanna. So I just want to give her props for being an awesome director. Um, and I'm excited about this new project because I think personal finance is one of those things that definitely um, affects every part of your life. Um, and so it's very much to me like the infrastructure of what you what you can achieve and what you can make happen in your life. Um, some background on me. Um, I'm currently in Boston. I'm actually moving to Cambridge, not that far away, but uh, in a couple of weeks. Um, and yeah, I do rent. I'm actually like a very happy renter because I, I really thrive on diversity of spaces and getting to explore new neighborhoods. So um, I've moved actually, I think, like almost every year since I was 18 and it doesn't super bother me. So <laughs> um, yeah, and I, you know, um, 
my actually one of the fun things about working for the city is my my income there was public data so yeah like i i made seventy eight thousand dollars a year um and in moving jobs i got a pretty typical pay bump beyond that but um it's way higher than i ever expected it to be um i actually started my career like working in coffee shops and doing americorps and so i think a lot of my perspectives on personal finance come from like knowing what it's like to be on a super tight budget that is like does not allow for a ton of splurging. And so I'm sort of at this point now where I have so many opportunities with my finances that I never had before. And that's been good and bad <laughs> in certain ways. Yeah, I'm trying to do this other background. Um, I do live with a partner, so that makes expenses um, a little bit easier just because there's someone to share with and sharing always makes expenses easier, <laughs> I think. And I do have a little pet hamster. So that's some fun fact about me. She's very cute. Her name's Pepita. Very cheap pet, by the way, if you're uh, looking for an affordable pet. Very clean and very cheap. <laughs> the, ultimate, the ultimate frugal tip. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. If you need a fluffy friend, get a hamster. <laughs> Not so, a little bit light on the personality side, but you know, that's, that's how it goes. Some other background just about like my current setup. I mean, I manage finances completely separately from my partner, which is a pretty intentional choice. And so right now about like 15% of my income is going to rent, probably 10% to like household costs, 10% to like sort of fun, play, friend, time. And then um, I donate 10% of my income. There are established conventions out there such as the 50-30-20 rule. And I'm curious to know, Hannah, you too, if you've heard of this, um, these benchmarks. The idea with the 50-30-20 rule is that you spend 50% on necessities, including 30% of your total on income on rent or no more than 30% on rent, 20% on savings, uh, no more than 30% on fun. But it sounds, it, it sounds like you use a different approach. So what do you think of that rule and how did you come up with your own benchmarks? Yeah, I'll start with saying that that rule is a really great rule to start at. I think like if, if you're trying, if you're going from like zero budget to just something like that is a great place to start just because like saving is really hard. <laughs> um, for me, I actually sort of veered off of that benchmark probably three or four years ago when my income started to go up because my concern with keeping that sort of framework as my income went up was that I would then also just increase my spending. Um, and I'm very wary of like paycheck inflation, lifestyle inflation, I guess. I know there's a term out there somewhere, but um, yeah. So I actually sort of just started incrementally changing my savings percentage based on how much my income had gone up. So like if my income doubled, then my savings goal doubled. So if that makes sense, rather than just keeping the percentage the same, because you know, that percentage would sort of affect the, um, the overall savings would like go up as well, but it meant that my um, uh, sort of discretional spending would also go up and I didn't want that to go up as much. So I kind of have been adjusting it alongside pay increases. The 15% um, uh, spent on rent seems particularly low, especially for the Boston area. It um, is. And I live in a 400 square foot apartment. <laughs> That's, amazing. Yeah. that's great. How does that shake out for you, Amy? Like on a daily basis, you feel like that's a good trade-off. Your rent being such a small part of your budget. Yeah. Yes and no. I mean, I full transparency. I'm moving to a place where I'll have a home office um, in Cambridge. It's not really like a full bedroom, but it's got a little more space because I've have been. I really think it'll be valuable to be able to have like a different space to be doing work or creative projects. That's not my house feel. So that's part of of 
uh, we'll try that out. I'll let you know how it goes. Um, but I do think it's a nice exchange because I, to me, I think I'd rather be able to like save on rent for, you know, supporting some of my other um, goals. And it really is just like a trade-off for me of, I don't, you know, pre-pandemic, I did not used to spend a lot of time in my house. So it really didn't matter that much to me. So I have found it's become a higher priority in the last year, just because I really haven't mm -hmm. had as many places to spend time. Um, so I'm adjusting to that. So that, that will change when I move. Um, but not, not a ton, actually. I'm only paying a hundred dollars more a month in Cambridge than here. So that's impressive. That's really impressive. It nice. sounds like you're one of those location, location, location people. Uh, I am. I mean, I just, I love being in like, uh, like a, a thriving like space. And um, one of the reasons for moving to Cambridge actually was just to be closer to my community. Like East Boston has been a little bit challenging just because it's a peninsula. And so to get mm -hmm. anywhere, I have to take the tea. Yeah. I'm willing to pay $1,200 more a year to like, just be closer to people. Yeah. And again, this is how personal finance factors in, right? Is like you have that squish room and then you can, you have the power to sort of choose those priorities and after the last year we've had I was like I just want to be able to see my friends more often because it's been rough <laughs> and everyone's priorities have definitely changed post-pandemic I think we can all all of us and any listeners can probably attest to that especially with our relationship with space for sure yeah um, and I, you sort of asked about my like budgeting practices and I think yeah. the way that that goes is I, I generally like annually do like a big like data poll um, of like, where did my money really go? And like looking back and sort of trying to categorize that. Um, and then I use that so that I have that. And then I sort of have the categories and I have my like, what's my ideal amount I want to spend on these different categories. And then I usually like land somewhere in the middle so that I have a chance of actually hitting the goal. So say if I, I realize, hey, I spent 4% of my income on coffee because I, I am a coffee nut. So I probably spend way more of my income than I should on that. But my goal is 2%. Then like maybe for the next year, I set the goal at 3% or so, whatever. And, and then monthly I track costs in each category to see, am I hitting that? Am I not? I tend to be pretty compassionate with myself, especially right now, if I don't hit things. Um, I used to be a little bit more strict, but right now it just feels like got to do what you got to do. And you know, if you're not going into debt, you don't really have a problem is sort of my, my overarching. Totally. Philosophy. And that's, that's the commitment to morale I mentioned. Um, you have to have benchmarks that are achievable or else everyone, everyone, I'm thinking in terms of, of our work context. Um, but if you can't, if you, if you set a benchmark that's unachievable, then everyone just feels depressed. Yeah, so, exactly. So yeah, meeting and in the I middle am an is a great idealist, So I like to like give myself room to vision what I'd like to be able to hit. But then I also am like, I'm a human. And like, I know that my behavior will probably not change that much in the space of a year. So like, where can I make incremental uh, <laughs> attempts to be closer to my ideal without like stressing myself out about it? So speaking of visioning, for the sake of our listeners, Hannah, Amy, and I were brainstorming over email what topics we wanted to hit with this conversation, and Amy dropped this idea of the deathbed manifesto, which sounds intriguing and we need to hear more about. Um, so can you tell us about the deathbed manifesto? Yeah, what is for this? sure. Um, I feel like this really resonates with me because I'm a product manager, and it's it's actually, it's a manifesto that was written... Um, earlier this year by like Gabrielle Collard, who runs the coach space blog. So props to her for the concept. Um, and it's really not that unlike the agile manifesto, um, which if, if you haven't heard about it, you know, we could like link to some resources or something. Um, but the, the deathbed manifesto is similar in that it's 
the concept is, is like your life is finite and time bound, right? And so just like the time on any given project, um, you are going to, um, you know, need a method that can help you mitigate any potential re regrets you might have on your deathbed, <laughs> because we all have these like deep, deep backlogs of like all these things we could be, all these versions of ourselves, all these goals we could achieve. And so what do you do to try and make sure that the things that actually matter to you most do end up at the top of your backlog and that you can make commitments towards getting those, especially when a lot of those goals can feel like very unachievable. <laughs> um, so this sort of process that goes with it and like, I guess, the sort of the outcome of, of engaging with the manifesto is that ideally you'd have sort of a pledge to yourself that you'd come out of it with. Um, so it's sort of what I came out of my process with, and it doesn't take a ton of time, but it does take sort of some undisturbed thought time. Um, it, it's just, you know, get pen and paper and like sit somewhere quiet, um, do your best to sort of remove your preconceived notions about what you should or shouldn't do in your life. And then really just try and imagine the end of your life, which sounds really morbid, but like, I think it's actually a really powerful thing that humans have a capacity to do. And it's one of the reasons that makes us like, um, uh, very, very powerful <laughs> in a lot of ways. Um, and so, you know, spend five or 10 minutes and just consider that and take note of what jumps into your mind immediately as a regret or a wish unfulfilled out of that. Um, and from there, um, you know, start jotting those down. The reason it's important to time box is because you can get kind of lofty with this. Like I did this practice once and I was like making stuff up. That was like, that, that's just not <laughs> like really a thing. Um, but I found when I time boxed it to like five to six minutes, it was actually very clear to me, like what things came up. Um, and then you sort of rank what those potential regrets might be. Um, and immediately you'll notice that like your brain starts to come up with, um, excuses uh, for like why those aren't achievable and so then it's about being very real with yourself like what is the excuse I have for not working on this like potential regret and any and then you sort of are honest about your excuses um and afterwards you sort of say okay what is one thing I can commit to doing that would overcome that obstacle so not even necessarily like making sure you can actually hit the goal or or, or make the thing happen but just say just prove to yourself there is something you can do towards working towards that goal. So that's a bit of a long-winded explanation. Um, I could give like an example if that's helpful too, but that's um, that's a bit of the concept and like the, the practice behind it. Yeah, I love this. If you have an example, I'm really curious. One of my first reactions was you were saying, you're talking about the importance of time boxing being contained to five to six minutes, but I was thinking, well, that feels like a really long time when you can lose your life in just a moment and ha not have any time to prep. But conversely, we have, we may have the rest of our, we literally have the rest of our lives to prepare for the end of our lives. Um, and so whatever time you can spend is very valuable, um, but you don't want to become obsessed and, you know, go down, circle the drain. So I I'm curious if you have an example you'd like to share with us. I, I would love to hear it. Yeah. Well, I think one, one thing that always comes up for me whenever I do this is like, I know that I would regret like not having a child or raising a child in some way in my life. Um, but one of the reasons I haven't really worked towards that is because I have a lot of excuses as to why I don't want to do that. <laughs> um, and so the excuses list is quite long, but like say a, like one <laughs> or two of them is, you know, uh, you know, the effect it would have on my income and my career is like one excuse. Um, the like daunting nature of the climate crisis is another excuse, right? And 
But like end of the day, I'm, if I'm honest with myself, like this is something I will regret not doing. And so it really, it makes you sit with that, right? Of like, hey, <laughs> I have this goal, but I also have these like very legitimate excuses. Um, and so like the two, say two things I would put around that obstacle. So one thing I did is I started like a savings um, account with my partner, just so that if when we revisit the topic in a year or two or whatever, um, we've put aside a chunk of money so that um, we can like not have that be as big a blocker. <laughs> now there's like some income buffer. So that was one way I sort of tried to come around that obstacle. It doesn't get rid of the obstacle, but it does prove to me that I have ways of navigating it. Um, and for like the obstacle, obstacle of like the climate crisis, um, my thing, my, my way around that was to start talking to people who had kids more about, hey, how do you handle being a parent right now? knowing like the state of things and and how challenging that is and just talking to people about it so that maybe it would make it feel less daunting to me or I'd have like more relatable um, information to work from. I would be happy to talk with you about that anytime, Amy. <laughs> having kids. I had just had my second a couple of weeks ago. Oh, so congrats. Oh, thanks. I'm all, I'm all about it. Um, there's never a good time and there's always ways to mitigate the impact that you and your family have on, on this earth. Um, yeah, but it's a, it's a really interesting question. Um, and I totally relate to this because I think that one of the major, um, reasons that we decided to start to, we did decide to have kids after, you know, eight years of living a carefree child free life, um, was in part because of regret. And it was, um, thinking, I, I think I'm going to regret this. I know I'm going to regret this if I don't um, in 10 years. So I can totally relate to that. I'm glad I'm not the only one that's speaking to this because I thought I was. <laughs> not at all, not at all. And, and then that's why I think the the sort of death and manifesto approach is so valuable because it makes you really, these are things that like you can just move through days, through weeks of your life with not really like looking at. Um, but I think when you really look at your mortality and you you acknowledge it's finite and you have no idea how long that finite time is, it just helps you, it helps you acknowledge like where you might be able to really start actually hitting some of your, your goals and, and no one's perfect, but it, it helps you at least be, I think, more honest with yourself than otherwise is possible. If you don't take the time to sort of look at it from that way. Yeah. And I do want to tie this into, you know, our larger theme that we're talking about. Um, Cause I think that this all definitely ties into that later mindset, I'll deal with that when I can, when it's a good time, but being present and, uh, and thinking about how that ties into your personal finance is really important. So I'm glad we're speaking to this. Sort of a follow-up on the, um, the budgeting conversation that we had, um, and how Amy approaches things with, um, benchmarks that, that differ a little bit from the conventional 50, 30, 20, or whatever you want to call it. Um, I, one thing I learned about you as your colleague is that you are an optimizer and you're really into efficiency. And so I'm kind of interested in exploring the areas of your life that you value less perhaps, or that you're willing to, to, um, to be less, to have be less rich, I suppose. So like for the areas that you try to save so that you can spend in the areas that you value more, can you talk a little bit more about, about that and how you manage to cut out waste and, and think about what you really need in these areas that you don't want to be sinking? Yeah, um, there's, a, there's a few different tactics. I'm happy to go into more details about any of them. I think the overarching one is, is I, I don't, um, 
I don't have a ton of like um, material priorities. So I like, you know, I just, I don't care if everything I own is used. I, I don't really care if I own a vehicle or property. Um, and that's really like a personality thing. So I don't know that everyone has that luxury, but I feel like it's been one of the things that's made it really easy for me to save because I just really thrive off experiences and um, more see, I guess, things I own as ways to get to those experiences. So I think that's that's definitely a piece of it. And I think that's like a growing trend for sure these days um, with like the Marie Kondo movement and stuff, you know, people just saying like, what really brings me value? What serves me? Um, because I think we, we do as a society, you know, trend towards this concept that like you can have the way to have progress in your life is to have more things, more ownership, more um, responsibilities, et cetera. So um, that's kind of maybe an overarching theme, but I think a couple of tactics that I really like, especially as someone who does love experiences, which can also be very expensive. So it's not like experiences necessarily help you save. Um, but I, I have started a practice of like whenever I travel um, to get like the most out of the experience and kind of <laughs> minimize um, the number of experiences I feel like I need to have is I will like spend a lot of time planning. Um, like if I'm going abroad, I'll try and like learn the language, I'll get to know the food, I'll research a bunch so that I'm kind of living the travel before I'm even traveling. And then when I get back, I'll do this whole like savoring process where I'll like talk to friends on the phone about the trip. I'll like print out photos or like review things or just kind of like sit with it and be like, wasn't that nice? And like, <laughs> I think a lot of people do that without like being conscious or realizing that they're doing it. It reminds me of, um, uh, I, I haven't been to a Broadway show in a long time, but um, whenever I had the opportunity, it's so expensive. I would listen to the soundtrack until I like knew every single word before going, because of course it makes the experience so much better. Yeah. Can I actually interrupt and ask you, um, as far as the, um, the not having a lot of not being materialistic really have you always been that way or was there a moment where you pivoted and like purged things and like changed your approach to that yeah I definitely did not grow up this way I mean I grew up in like a very very well-off household like I loved my toys and my things and I was obsessed that I didn't get an American Girl doll so like it's not my nature per se <laughs> um so yeah, I, I think the the pivot point for me was actually going to university and just like for the first time getting to define my own space and getting to define my own priorities. And I ended up just realizing what a huge priority travel was for me and um, exploring. And um, I learned very quickly that the easiest way to build that lifestyle is to stay light and just stay mobile. Um, and to do that, you kind of just have to be picky about what you, what objects you do and don't let into your life or like sharing it like that really is what got me into the sharing economy as well right is like I don't need to own these things I can be a member of some shared group or I can use some sort of shared resource instead of a personal resource and I think uh, so part of it was like my early um, penchant for traveling definitely sent me pretty heavily in that direction and then once I did sort of end up in like full-time jobs and like living in a place for a year or two at a time um, I you know I then I knew that if I wanted to travel again, like better not acquire too much stuff because that's just going to make it harder, right? Like the more settled you get, the harder it is to really pull out of that mode and like sort of go out into the um, more adventurous mode again. So yep, I can totally relate to that. The feeling of your stuff weighing you down and it's not just physical, it's emotional too. 
it's not like you need to take everything you own when you travel, you know, usually you just leave it where it is, but it still has this weight to it. So being able to thin what you own gives you a lot more kind of space mentally too to explore what else is out there. Yeah. And it's one of the reasons I like moving so often too. Like I'm excited. I'm now like getting to like put things in fabric recycling piles and goodwill piles because you just, you don't want to carry it all out of the apartment and put it in a new apartment. So it's sort of this like purge cycle that comes with, um, with moving that I actually really enjoy. (laughs) I know it's very stressful. No, I love, I love the purging that comes with moving. I've moved a couple of times recently and now I'm a lot lighter and my sister's lived in New York for over a decade and she's moving to Atlanta and she's so overwhelmed and so stressed out. And I, I'm like, wow, I know it must be, I mean, this is the first time she's had an opportunity to purge the stuff that's like in the deep recesses of her closets and stuff. So I'm going to help her do that. One thing, um, that's a struggle for me with, um, getting rid of things. Um, I know Hannah, Hannah, uh, has a minimalist approach as well. She, um, I don't think she ever gets toys for her kids that are new. She does like Facebook, um, share things and, um, she's a pretty sparse, like toy life in her house. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm a big proponent of buy nothing groups on Facebook. Like I, I want to shout it from the rooftops, like 90 plus percent of all of my kids stuff has come from friends or from neighbors. And it's been a life changer. And whenever my husband complains about how much stuff we have, I'm like, it literally fits in one box. And I'm constantly every week, things are leaving at the same pace that they're coming in the door. So yeah, I think I, I think that Hannah has um, is at a is at a like mature or sophisticated stage of the like getting rid of things. But one one thing that's a problem for me is that I don't know where to get rid of things, and I feel like I'm contributing to waste or like not valuing the things I have. And I'm I'm committed to the purge. I don't need it. Um, but I but I've I've learned from Hannah that you need to cultivate connections um, in the like what's the word sort of like the the end part of the cycle as well as the beginning part of the cycle if you want to not buy new things and you want to not trash your stuff what what can this can this be, thing be appreciated more by somebody else can it live its best life with somebody else when i'm done with it and the idea of something going into the landfill on my name is just gives me you know like it it just gives me more anxiety because I don't want to be contributing to the cycle. Even if I wasn't the one to purchase it new and I wasn't the reason it was created in the first place, I'm still contributing on the back end by throwing it away. Right. Yeah. I remember my last, I I moved out of like a two bedroom apartment I'd been in for three years before going on a big trip. And we had this really fun party where we just like let people come into our house and like take whatever they wanted. And it was actually delightful. It's actually inspired me that like, when I'm getting older, like closer to dying, I really want to like have people just come to my house and choose what they want me to give them once I die. Like, I was like, this is so fun. It's so fun to see people get excited about your stuff and just be honest about what they like and don't like. (laughs) Yes. I love this idea. I, um, when I was moving one time, I had a big party going away party and I made individual baggies for people. Um, and I gave them to them as they left and they were personalized based on what I thought people would like, but the problem was that they didn't necessarily want what I was giving them. And so I had to get them out the door and then hand them the bag and say goodbye. So they wouldn't open it. And my girlfriend opened hers and she was like, I don't need five bobby pins and a comb and a pair of socks. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I was like, yeah it's yours now 
yeah, yeah, you have to know where it's going. And so you get to see people appreciate it and pick out what they want even better. I love that idea. <laughs> That's so sweet. So another thing that I admire about you is that you embody the idea that there's no such thing as failure, only opportunities for redirection. Um, with the city of Boston in any professional setting, this is pretty important because staff can get defensive and if they feel like they're being attacked, they can hoard information and then you don't actually learn how to avoid mistakes next time. Can you describe how you integrate reflection and redirection into your personal life, especially with something like the deathbed manifesto where, where it's like such a long-term goal um, that you're not going to achieve in like a two weeks or even a, a quarter? Yeah. Um, yeah. No, that's a great question. And um, I appreciate that because I think it is, it's something I really love is like, I love helping people like look back and reflect and figure out what would you do differently. And I think the fun thing about doing that is that it really gets you into a place where you, you just say any action is better than any non-action, right? Like, because that is actually, if you study regrets, like I, I study a lot of like psychology and social psychology. And if you study regrets, it's, it's, very proven that people regret more what they didn't do than what they did do. So like, it's very few of the people who are like, I wish I hadn't done that. It's more people are like, I never got to do blank. Um, and so I think that's why the reflection is really helpful because it kind of identifies, it also, it trends you towards action because then you become less afraid and you realize that there's like a learning opportunity in pretty much anything you do if you take the time to like learn it. <laughs> um, I guess how that appears for me in my personal life is, I mean, I'm, I have a user research background. So with, with like anything, I keep sort of a quantitative side of things and a qualitative side of things. And so I do have some metrics like at my job, I, you know, every week I say like on a scale of one to 10, how happy do I feel this week? Um, and that's a helpful sort of metric. And then my budget is actually another metric, right? Like, am I overspending? Am I underspending? Is my money lining up with my goals? Um, and reflecting on that as sort of a metrics point. And then, you know, if I do end up with like sort of a bigger project, I'll try and set up like sub goals and track those over time. That's a little bit harder to do. So I don't really have a great method for that yet. But those other two kind of are pretty centered at this point. And then the qualitative side is like, I'm very committed to um, going on me dates once a month, which I would highly recommend. Um, and like, I will never give those up for anything because <laughs> I just like, I give myself like 60 bucks. I go wherever I want. I take myself to movies. I go on a picnic. I buy myself a nice bottle of wine, like whatever, whatever I would expect a romantic partner to do for me. I do for myself. <laughs> um, and I think those actually have like become these like sort of um, check-in points um, where I'll, I've started just like bringing a journal and like, I get in such a like positive head place about myself because I'm treating myself so nicely that then it's like this really lovely check-in about like, where are we at and like what's going well and what's hard and um yeah so I think having those then is like this qualitative balance where like then I'm sort of checking on those so that's another sort of reflection thing I've started to do um and I think you know it's also about having the whole reason people to invest in that is that you have to have faith that like you're actually in control of your happiness having that faith then also makes me more invested in reflecting. Cause I think if you don't have that faith, like why would you spend time reflecting on your ability to do that? Totally. The empowerment aspect, like just being just the act of reflecting, um, on whatever sort of metrics you pull together and when in doubt the whole one to 
one to 10 or one to five or whatever, like how happy I am kind of thing is mm -hmm. a good default when you don't have any like better metrics for something. And um, that reminds me actually, Hannah, of, of um, when we worked for this organization in Southwest Virginia, um, uh, the Southern Appalachian Mountain Stewards, we were organizing against mountaintop removal coal mining. And um, when I moved down there in 2010, primarily the campaigns were around just fighting specific permits and Hannah was working on a like air quality campaign. Um, and I started working with um, residents to monitor stream quality. And at that time, we didn't have a campaign goal yet. The only goal of doing that was just to learn about the, the streams. Our, and water quality in general. And we were like measuring conductivity and we didn't have a like campaign target. Um, we weren't like fighting specific, for any specific change, but we were just learn like getting a baseline basically. And then it turned into once we learned that we um, realized what we wanted to fight for. Um, and so for me, it's definitely hard to um, <clears throat> do that kind of reflection if I'm not sure where I'm going with it. And um, I need to remind myself that it's worth reflecting because patterns will emerge. I want to hear about this, this infamous work-life balance that Susie's told me about. Since I started my career, I've always just had a very clear priority list of like the people, like the facets of my life. And so it's always been like, I'm the top priority. My partner is my second priority. My third priority is my friends. My fourth priority is my family. And my fifth priority is my work. And like, I don't think that's to knock work. Like work is very essential to my ability to like meet all my other priorities. But it's also remembering that like work doesn't love you back. Friends and family do. Um, and, you know, there's, there's a longevity to like relationships that I just have never found work can replace. And so I think that's really core to like why I, I do keep clear boundaries with work. I'm also, it's almost to the benefit of the places I work, I think that I have a good work-life balance because my productivity is really high when I'm working. So if I'm, if I'm online and I'm working for you, like I am getting a lot of things done very quickly. And I've been told in a lot of my jobs that I have a huge capacity. And so it's kind of ironic that I have this huge capacity and yet I rarely work like more than 35 or 40 hours a week. And so I think there's just this false sense that more hours is more outcomes and I'm just very outcome focused. So I will say one thing I look for is if a, if a job can't help me figure out what success looks like either for the company or for the users I'm working on, working with, um, then I know I have a little bit of an issue because I don't know what outcomes we're trying to achieve um, totally. and what that looks like. And if I don't have that direction, it's going to be very hard for me to be productive in a way that the company is not going to ask me to do more and more. Um, so it's saying like, what are my targets? what am I really trying to affect here? Making sure I can then put my efforts into hitting that. Um, and that helps me set, I think, better boundaries um, as well, because I'm just like, well, this is the thing I'm focused on. So I'm not going to do these other things. Well, I'm going to do this thing well, because this is what we're focused on. Um, and yeah. I think if that can't be said to you by a company, if they're like, oh, we have all these things, like that's a sign that you're going to sort of be caught in the crossfire there. Um, and especially in a role like product where you're really interfacing with like so many different stakeholders, it's, it's, it can be very dangerous to like end up having, being pulled in all those directions. So I really think you should consider a career change into coaching because we're all learning a lot right now. <laughs> oh, I have actually considered being a career coach. I had a really great career counselor um, when I was in college and I loved her and she passed away very young. And I'm like, I just feel like I want to continue her legacy sometimes. Oh. <laughs> 
That would be amazing. We would be lucky to have you in the world in that capacity or, or any, but I love what you're sharing. It sounds like you put a lot of thought and intention into it. And I appreciate you sharing it with us. Oh, thank you. Well, we're coming up on the hour and I want to, um, you know, I could talk to you forever, but is there, is there any, you know, story or tidbit or any, anything you feel like, uh, you want to share that we didn't cover? Um, Hmm. I guess just on the finance piece, you know, I think the one thing I would share is just like, start wherever you can, like put $10 into a 401k twice a year, just anything to show, to signal like your intentions to like have the finances that will support the life you want. Um, And it's a, it's a really hard thing to do. Um, And, and I have a lot of mixed feelings about money and wealth management, but um, I think that that is honestly like a really great way to share, show yourself, you care about yourself and you care about your future version of yourself and you care about your abilities um, to live the life you want. Um, And for better or worse, money is a huge part of that. So whatever that tiny thing is, tiny amount, whatever, don't make, don't let other people make you feel like it's not enough. It's enough. You're, you're showing yourself that you have the muscle behind it. And that means that once you do have the money um, or the resources to really make those larger amounts, um, you're going to stick to it. So it's, it's, you know, it's a habit and it it never hurts to start a habit soon. (laughs) Yeah. I'm curious, Amy, where did, where did you first uh, glean that insight? Um, probably my parents. Um, yeah, I had a little like child's checkbook. Um, my mom is in banking. (laughs) Um, so I had this very cute set of checkbooks had a little teddy bear in the middle and my parents like managed an account for me. I think it was like a hundred dollars or whatever. Um, and I could write checks and ask for money and I could deposit money. And, um, I just, you know, very, I've had a job since I was 15 and a half, actually. I really like working and I really like getting a paycheck. (laughs) So, um, yeah, I don't know. It's kind of instilled this, it really taught me from a young young age, like if you want to have a choice about what you do and, and how you spend your time, like thank your money, be smart about your money. And that's, that's sort of, so it started off with like two or $3 to my parents. Love that. <laughs> they would then, you know, give me whenever I wrote a check for it. <laughs> That's amazing. Did they pay you for chores, like picking up sticks and stuff like that? I, I got an allowance for contributing to household chores. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, I got a call from my bank not too long ago and the, it was like a, just a typical sales call. They were just trying to make contact with me so they could say, oh, and also, as long as I have you, let me upsell you something. And they were like, oh, I just want to thank you for 29 years of banking with us. And I'm 33. The woman's confusion is palpable. <laughs> she was so uh, uh, just mind blown because the bank had been bought by so many different, it had been bought out so many times that it was the same account that I'd had since, you know, I was four years old. <laughs> wow. That's so funny and cute. Yeah, 29 years. I'm just, I'm picturing both of you guys as like five years old and like in a, in a dress suit and a briefcase, <laughs> little, little bankers. That's, just that's change that to like a dream. Cinderella outfit and it'll be right. <laughs> <laughs>
Awesome. Well, Amy, thank you so much with us. We really appreciate it. And I love how intentional and how much time you've spent thinking and studying and reflecting on all of this and, and sharing it with us. And, um, I can tell Suzanne, I was so lucky to work with you and we're lucky to have had you as a guest on ways to mean. So thank you. Well, thank you for asking me. I was very touched and I am really excited about this project and excited to tune in and hear other people's perspectives. There's always so many takes on this stuff and it's, it's so essential. So thanks for talking about it. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Ways to Means with Hannah and Susanna. Stay tuned for more episodes coming soon. 